A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week we're looking forward to the results of the European and local elections with Raphael Baer and George Eaton. Ian Stebman and I discuss whether there are any scientific differences between the races and Yozushi joins us to talk about Bob Dylan and fandom. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about elections. We're recording this on Thursday, which is obviously polling day, um, but you'll be hearing it before we've heard the results of the European elections, which I think it's fair to say are probably considered to be the the big ones here. Um, So let's talk in a slightly more broader view. Raph, you've written um, an essay this week about the kind of the broader rise of UKIP and what that says about UK politics. Yes, the the question I try to answer is uh, ultimately whether or not uh, the UKIP bubble will burst, and obviously that that's um, sort of premised on the idea that it is a bubble. Um, I think, to a large extent, it is. Uh, this I don't know many people who think that they'll do better um, in a general election, or any people who think they'll do better in a general election than they are likely to do in the European election. There is clearly a surge of support, and uh, at the moment, and that comes about for three reasons really. One, in a European election, it's a free hit. Um, people, a lot of people go into the polling booth thinking, answering the question, do you hate the government, um, rather than who do you most want to be your member of the European Parliament in Strasbourg? Um, and the answer to a lot of people's question, do you want to hurt the government, is yes. Uh, and for currently voting UKIP is a very effective way of, of doing that, and indeed hurting all of the, what they call the mainstream parties. Two other things have happened. Um, one, the uh, the immigration salience of immigration in politics has has soared in recent years. Um, that's partly because the Conservatives have sort of facilitated a slightly UKP conversation about you know why and whether immigration should be the one thing that everyone's most concerned about. And to do with this idea that UKIP have seamlessly melded the idea of yes, being anti-European. And, 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 yeah, and that's the other thing, that very effectively, although UKIP sort of started out as an anti-Brussels, anti-European Union party, they have... Um, and I, I, to be honest, I thought this would happen sooner. I'm sort of surprised it's taken so long. They have effectively found a way of combining Euroscepticism and, frankly, a kind of xenophobia, which is to say that because of the free movement of people, which is a condition of British membership of the European Union, as long as you're a member of the EU, national governments have surrendered control over a large portion of their migration policy. Therefore, being Eurosceptic, being anti-migrant, being anti-establishment, all melds together uh, in the form of this um, man, Nigel Farage, who, as I say, some people seem to like. Personally, I don't see the appeal, but then that makes me part of the metropolitan liberal elite, I suppose. Chai latte sipping metropolitan elite, I believe, TM, uh, Nigel Farage. Um, 
George, this is a, a sticky situation for Labour, isn't it? Because they would hope to be hoovering up anti-conservative sentiment, anti-coalition sentiment. Instead, that seems to have translated into a more general anti-everyone-but-Nigel-Farage sentiment. Exactly. And if they don't win the European elections, they'll be the first main opposition party not to do so since 1984. And it might also be the first time that the Conservatives have come third in a national election ever? Yes, ever, exactly. And that was one reason why the uh, common assumption in Westminster was that David Cameron would be the leader who would have most uh, fear from the contest. Actually, the Conservatives have managed expectations very well. A third place finish is now perfectly priced into Cameron's, uh, Cameron's shares and they've re- appeased Eurosceptics in advance, and so you're not going to see a, a sort of Tory revolt if, if they if they finish if they finish third. I think the danger for Labour though is that all the tensions in private and to some extent in public over the UKIP strategy will come to the surface if they finish second. And um, I think I, you've, you've seen Ed Miliband come out with a lot of policies over this campaign, probably more policies than any party in recent history has announced over local and European elections, but they haven't connected in the way um, the party needs them to. Yeah, I wouldn't underestimate the, the importance of, the, of that, that factor in, over the next couple of weeks because a European election is historically a terrible indicator of what's going to happen in a general election. I mean, William Hague won uh, the highest share of the vote for the Tories in 1999. Didn't mean the Tories were about to form a government. Uh, the Greens got 15% of the vote um, in 1989. It wasn't the beginning of a great Green surge turning them into a significant force in Westminster politics. So th- it, you can sort of have a European election and then everyone moves on and you sort of regress to the mean. And the trend is still, as George said, Labour not really getting enough people who don't want, don't like the Tories don't really like the idea of Tory government to think that the corollary of that is you should have an Ed Miliband Labour government. And that is, you know, there's been a long period during which Labour can say, well, that's okay because we'll show our policies or people will get to know the leader or this is something that we've got a long strategy that means ultimately in the run up to a general election, this will somehow click into place. And now you're seeing more and more people on Labour's side thinking it won't, it's not happening. And in fact, the the trajectory is in the other direction. And I, I think Labour are quite close to having a moment of a quite profound anxiety. That is interesting because you talked about the Conservatives being being priced in. Lib Dems, you could say, very much the same. I mean, there was a briefing that was released last night, um, leaked to Nick Water, The Guardian, saying, you know, lines to take. If we don't get... If we all are on our MEPs, we lose them, then we sort of go, oh, well, but, you know, hey-ho. And then three to five, well, that's actually not that bad. So they're very much... You know, pre-rolling the field to do extremely badly, so in the hope that they can then upsell if they keep six. Exactly. I mean, I think that they will certainly lose more than half of their eleven MEPs. I think a good result for them would be to keep three or four. There is a chance that they will lose uh, all of their MEPs, and that's not just in part it is expectation management, but it's also an acknowledgement of of the maths and 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 the arithmetic. Um, but I think Nick Clegg will survive, and one reason is partly because no one wants to take over at this stage and lead the party to a potentially terrible result in May 2015. And also because, as the party president, Tim Farron, said to me, the activists have been quite encouraged and motivated by this campaign they've run around We Are The Party Of In, uh, that it has given them a message, a principle and values to organise around. And so even if they go down to a terrible defeat, they'll feel it was an honourable defeat. They feel we tried... Um, and actually, you know, we couldn't have done much better. The party fought this hard. Um, and we're not going to we're not going to punish our that, leader. That, for that said, it doesn't look. I mean, I agree with that. That as, a, as an analysis of how the Lib Dems will handle it, 
it doesn't look good though. If they come in, if they come fifth, for example, behind the Greens, which is possible, we don't know. Um, or and they already they lose all of their MEPs, or it's just another result where they just get kicked around all over the place. The great problem for the Lib Dems is that they just look irrelevant in terms of who is defining where politics is moving in this country. And what I think that we're starting to see now, which is what gives the Conservatives a great deal of hope, is a sense that you've got sort of Farage trying to define insurgent politics over with sort of angry nationalist xenophobia. You've got Ed Miliband sort of trying to say, well, actually, I've identified the centre of grander politics somewhere else with my sort of soft left populist anti-free market insurgency. Nick Clegg's essentially out of the debate. They can have some MPs because they're dug in in the ground, but no one seriously thinks Cleggism is the brave new future of British politics. And Cameron is just rising above it slightly. And you will get to a situation where the Tories can run a campaign that says... There's one grown-up candidate here who can actually fix the economy. It hurt. It wasn't, you know, you don't like necessarily everything we've done, but you've got to admit it's kind of working. We're getting on with it. And then you've got all these B-listers, you know, come off it. Who's actually going to be running this country after 2015? And at the moment, no one's really challenging that story from the Conservatives, and it will be quite a strong campaign. And isn't there also a case that Labour's still got a a problem with its past? So it's very, you know, there's a a real tension in Labour between what things you apologise for and what things you stand by. So do you say, well, we presided over a period of enormous growth? Yes, it went wrong at the end. For example, do you sort of, do they apologise for their record on immigration? Do they apologise for the fact that they are pro-European? Do you think, George, that the, the kind of triangulation of Labour is, is maybe going a bit too far and they risk looking a bit mushy? I think there is a, a danger in that they've announced a lot of individually attractive policies, but the collective message isn't clear and the, the, the campaign certainly hasn't done that. So the two election broadcasts they had were the uncredible shrinking man on, on Nick Clegg and one on the NHS Ed Miliband uh, visiting uh, hospitals. Um, and you could see the arguments for both, but what they needed was one election broadcast that brought all of the policies together and said, here is our vision. And that's something the Conservatives have been very good at, is, is message discipline, really, that we have a long-term economic plan. Yes, it took longer than we thought, but it's working. Labour, certainly, you can't trust them to do any better. These are the guys who crashed the economy. It's a, it's a message that uh, you know, bores the hell out of journalists in Westminster, but it seems to be gaining some traction in the country. Um, I think Labour needs to work harder at finding the link between policy and messaging. And then on Labour's past, I think Ed Miliband has generally been right in his assumption that it's it's good to acknowledge your mistakes. Successful political parties learn from their defeats. And that's what Labour did in the 1990s. It's what the Tories to some extent did under David Cameron, uh, not to the extent that they needed to to win a majority. Um, So I don't think actually a strong defence of Labour's past record is, is, is a panacea, although obviously you need to remind people of the achievements there were. Selections are about the future, not the past. Um, the challenge for Labour is that at the moment it's not clear what a, a Miliband future looks like. Well, I think we'll leave it there. We'll be back next week. Obviously, the results from the European elections are out on Sunday night, so we'll have both sets to talk about next week. And who knows, it might be a massive landslide for the Lib Dems, or maybe not. Uh, thank you very much, Raf and George. Thank you. Thank you. I'm joined by Ian Stebman, our science blogger, to talk about a new book which is called The Troublesome Inheritance by Nicholas Wade, uh, Genes, Race and Human History. 
Well, first of all, explain the thesis of the book, Ian, and then explain your problem with it. Yes, um, this this is a book that's been making quite a lot of waves for its uh, claims about the genetic basis of race. Um, Nicholas Wade is a science writer who has quite a, a distinguished career. He used to be the deputy editor of Nature. Um, he's written for the New York Times for many years uh, and other publications like The Guardian and The um, Washington Post. And um, his new book is pushing this idea that uh, not only are there genetic differences between human races, but that the differences in human societies are because people are genetically different. So um, he believes that, for instance, uh, white Europeans and East Asians are better suited to uh, uh, sort of safe, solid, secure nation states with uh, the rule of law, uh, that Africans are predisposed to tribalism. Uh, Jews are adapted to capitalism. That is the kind of <laughs> yeah. statement that your eyes just, you know, your eyebrows just shoot into your hair. Like. Yeah, he, he he compares it to uh, Tibetans being uh, adapted to higher altitudes and being better at absorbing oxygen. Um, and it's it's a book that contains a lot of science, but I believe kind of twists it towards very dubious ends. I call it a racist book in my review because I believe it is racist. And it's racist by the definition that he uses in the book. Which is? Um, that it is a system of prejudice which uh, cr- uh, creates a hierarchy between races, ranking them on different attributes, which is exactly what he does um, in terms of saying that East Asians get higher IQ scores than whites who in turn get, uh, get higher scores than Africans, for instance. But that's something that's come up several times recently. There was a book by Amy Chua and her husband about um, Asian Americans specifically, and about the idea that you know they they are that they are culturally better adapted to doing, and that's why they do better in in school. And then with the, then the obvious inference being that people who do less well are are lazy essentially. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's the trouble where some of this this goes is that it 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 tends towards that model of of kind of some people are just better adapted and totally overlooks any kind of huge systems of for example the structural discrimination that you yeah. might see in America against African Americans. He doesn't consider any kind of structural prejudice um of any kind um and is very dismissive with what he calls the social sciences which um <laughs> he he repeatedly refers to leftists and marxists who have uh hidden this truth that there are biological differences between races. Um, I mean, he does quote a lot of studies. Um, the first half of the book is um, a lot of recent research, which has shown um, in anthropology and genetics research that um, you can look. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apt genes among human populations that have been... Uh, influenced by natural selection, that is in their environmental pressures, whatever they are, whether um, you're living in a city or in a rural place, that have been changed by uh, natural selection. And you can group humanity into different groups depending on which of these genes they hold. There are um, There's a gene that Finnish people overwhelmingly have that makes them, uh, that is linked with uh, spontaneity and a lack of uh, judgment making when drunk and uh, is attributed for being violent when drunk, for instance. But that's not to say that all Finnish people are 
drunk. Mm. And this is kind of where it falls down, where he he takes the fact that you can divide people based upon this criteria of clumpings of certain genetic adaptations, and then uses that as the an almost fatalistic justification for saying that, for instance, Jews are adapted to capitalism because they were forced into a social niche where banking was the only thing they could do. Um, but the, the flip side of that is something like... Um, as I say in my review, are we then to to say that the Roma are genetically predisposed to petty crime? I mean, by his standards, he never identifies a single gene that makes someone good at banking, that makes someone um, sort of un- incapable of living in a nation state and have to stick with tribalism. He, he, can, he just kind of says, well, they keep doing this. They can't import Western institutions and Western styles of life, which he consistently refers to as better as well. Um, so they must be just genetically incapable of it. And that, that, that's just a complete, as a hypothesis, there's no evidence for it, frankly. And it does sound like it sort of comes, it's the wrong way around in the sense is that you look at people who have ended up in a situation because yeah. of, you know, thousands of years of a particular pressure on them and then say, and therefore that's sort of, yeah, like you say, yeah. the sort of fatalistic idea of it. Mm. Is there anything in the book that you liked? Um, I mean, it is interesting from the perspective of just, this is what people rely on for, um, I mean, th- this book has got very good reviews from white power movements. Um, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Duke, the head of the, you know, who's the current guy who's the current head of the Ku Klux Klan? That's not a great, you wouldn't <laughs> put that on the book jacket, would you no. really? Um, but there's Jared Taylor, who has been pushing uh, these kind of theories for a long time. Um, a lot of very sinister right-wing people um, have taken this as kind of justification for their beliefs, but just in exactly the same way that phrenology, measuring school shape was, or um, there was a book in the 90s which came out called The Bell Curve, which was almost exactly the same, but relied on IQ instead of genes. Mm. Um, and it, it it just is uh, groundless, frankly. But you definitely, I mean, it definitely happens too as well in, in, in things that people will say to you that are anti-feminist in the sense that they say, well, women are just more nurturing. And that's just it. That is just, there's a sort of yeah. biologically determinist argument for some of these things. Um, girls, little, my favourite one is the classic, um, you know, about gendering of toys. Well, little girls mm. just like pink. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's some sort you can, of... You can give them a, dre- uh, a photo of Teddy Roosevelt in a dress. Yeah, exactly. all that stuff. But, because yeah. pink only became a female colour in, you know, in the 1920s or slightly before. And then there's a kind of, this kind of, I sort of, like you say, it's this kind of reverse way. So you look at a state that exists now and you look at a, a, an evolutionary psychological way to... To attribute it. So there was this great thing about that maybe women's eyes adapted to see red berries um, <laughs> because they would they were foraging. <laughs> um, it's a, it's kind of astonishing. But um, so, do you think the book is worth reading? This is the kind of thing that comes I think up it, I think it's worth reading. Just um, in the terms of science writing, it's always worth reading stuff that you know is wrong to be able to see if you can identify why it's wrong just as self-education um um yeah um you can read a shorter version of it the spectator gave wade the cover feature last week um and it was essentially a truncated version of his argument um and you can read that and it's just as ridiculous well, there we go. we've ended up with endorsing buying a rival publication. But no, um, read it online. News <laughs> do not link, so you don't even give them ad no, revenue. D- do not use that because people use that. To, no, bad, bad, Ian. Um, if you should definitely pay to read stuff, even if you disagree with it, I'm not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian. Bob 
Dylan surprised his fans by releasing a cover version. So I'm here to join by Yozishi, one of our sub-editors, who's written for the magazine about um, why Dylan hates his fans, and by surprise Dylan fan Ian Stedman. Uh, Hello. Um, so, Yo, start off by telling us, what, what did you write in the magazine this week? Well, um, in this the week of his 73rd birthday, um, people are getting excited in the, the Bobcat community online. The Bobcat community? Yeah, just, you know, constantly refreshing the website, expecting rain, hoping for some new update about um, a possible new album, which um, is rumoured to be coming out at the end of August. Obviously, it's pure conjecture because Columbia Records and Dylan's people haven't really announced that at all. But everyone's getting excited because... We generally tend to do. I see but instead of uh, you are you are a bobcat, is that uh, well, what you well, call yourself? In a kind of, you know, if, if this was in the magazine, you'd be italicised with inverted commas <laughs> because it's done very, it's said very ironically, obviously. But uh, but you yeah, are. We're we're very excited about it. But instead of the album, you got a cover of a song that was once recorded by Frank Sinatra. Yes, it's called Full Moon and Empty Arms. It's a 1945 song, um, best best known for the Sinatra version, and Dylan has kept quite you know a faithful approach when uh, reinterpreting it is it's basically the, exactly the same so you're saying that the phrasing and everything the way that he's singing it is, well, the, is very similar the tempo is is, is is practically the same he's replaced um, strings this is quite technical but you know he's replaced strings with with um, a pedal steel guitar and and things like that but then this is what he's been doing for a long time um, a lot of people have noted with quite a lot of dismay actually um, how similar his arrangements are of, of songs he claims to have written himself to older songs. Like um, there's this uh, Bing Crosby's recording called um, Red Sails in the Sunset, uh, which was completely retooled for a recent Bob song called Beyond the Horizon. Same tempo, same guitars, just different words, same tune. Well, the thing I find most astonishing from your piece was this idea that about that I didn't really have any clue about about how much Bob Dylan apparently hates his fans. So you were talking about the idea that sometimes people would queue for a concert and he would reverse the queue so that the people who derived it, which is kind of quite biblical, like that story about the people who joined the fields at the last minute. But and then you were telling me that perhaps there was a guy who came to all his concerts and he said, "You like you can't come to your band." Well, well, no, well, he wasn't necessarily banned. He just you know. Like one day, this guy. This is this is in, in this great book called the Dinner. Was it the Dylanologists, which came out very recently? Um, but um, uh, in this book, who's, um, there's a story about a fan who would go religiously to almost every Bob show, and one day, after years of clinging to the front fence, Bob himself deigns to go up to him leans in and, and, and starts talking, and he's really excited. And what Bob says is, I'll never want to see you here again. <laughs> and it's such a <laughs> tragic situation. You know, imagine your hero, you know, that's that phrase, never meet your heroes. If your hero came up to you and said that, you know, imagine how crushing an experience that would be. Um, Ian, do you consider yourself a, a bobcat? Uh, not a bobcat, but I am a pretty big Dylan fan, yes. But, um, so why is the Dylan... What's, what's interesting about the Dylan fandom? Uh... Wow, well, it's I, oh, I guess it's what's interesting about Bob Dylan is because that there is a Bob Dylan for everyone. Um, this is I, kind of all the the mythology nonsense from the sixties and seventies, but it's very true that um, like I heard it uh, heard someone say once that everyone finds at least one Dylan song that they like, and I think that is kind of true because he's had such a wide and varied career. I'm I for me it's Lay Lady Lay. That's my great favorite. song. Great song. Um, 
And I, I is that in what? Did you say pervert? pervert? <laughs> well, I thought you were going to like have a go at my musical taste, which is obviously appalling in general. But I wasn't expecting that yet. Yeah. Um, sorry, Ian. Um, yeah, he, he just. Uh, I, I think the idea of Dylan is what's so fascinating because you never know who Dylan is, which is why um, I was saying to the, this to you earlier off uh, off mic that one of my favourite films is I'm Not There, which was the Todd Haynes Bob Dylan biopic, but even though it's a biopic of Bob Dylan with six different actors playing seven different versions of him. It's not actually about Bob Dylan. It's about the the reincarnation of Bob Dylan, the public figure. There's, like, you know, the superstar Bob Dylan. There's the re- Christian revival Bob Dylan. There's the uh, one. There's the Bob Dylan who rode on a train to New York and played his guitar to Woody Guthrie as he lay dying in hospital. Like, these are all the legends of Bob Dylan. This is what people like about him. But you never actually know anything about the real Bob Dylan because... And that's, pro- and that's why... Um, he very often reacts quite badly to, to, to fans, I think, is that because they have this habit of treating him as almost like a Moses-like figure, bringing tablets down from the mount. And his, you know, his lyrics are so dense and, and poetic, but he, he is just a very intelligent songwriter. But that's something you see kind of more and more, I find fascinating, the relationship between creators and fans, and actually people who feel really hobbled by the weight of expectations, by the fact that fans want them to be something. Mm. I mean, I guess the classic example is all the bands who insist on playing new stuff, even though they know that everybody has turned up to see them play I still them. remember Mariah Carey playing her new song when she played Live 8 oh, that, that, see, that went down really badly that's, um, I think that but that's really tough but from the point of view of the artist you can see that they don't want to be trapped in a, you know, in yeah. a, in a, a version of them that they feel that they've long since discarded um, yo tough question when was the last good Bob Dylan song Last good one. He's, he's constantly coming up with them. <laughs> Tempest, you know, his most recent album, which came out in 2012, was, was an excellent album and did very well, both commercially and critically. And, you know, I think a lot of people are put off by his voice recently, which I, 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 I love, but I might be very deluded. Why? What's, what's happened? Well, you know... He sounds like Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, yes, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, there's this robot cat character with no ears in, in Japanese kind of kids comic land and this is a character called Doraemon he's got a weird garbled voice because he's a robot cat from the 24th century right. and Bob Dylan sounds exactly like this robot <laughs> cat from the 24th century and that in and your opinion is a good thing it's a bad thing musically but if you listen to enough of anything like, like I have you kind of trick yourself into thinking that, for, that okay the song might be bad but that line was good no, wait, that word in that line was good. And you, know, you, you end up doing it and getting this thrill from hearing a little fragment of the old spot. It sounds to me a bit like you need to break up with Bob Dylan. Like, you and Bob Dylan <laughs> haven't been good for each other for quite a while. I, I, I don't know. Well, I get a lot out of it. And you get different things out of his youthful period and his, old, uh, and his uh, more current period. And, you know, the fact is, he's become so entrenched in the cultural landscape in, in music that, that, you know, you don't just listen to a Bob Dylan song when you hear it. You hear this this larger narrative, which kind of enriches your experience as a listener, and obviously that that's that could be interpreted as some crazed fan delusion. But um, you know, it, it rocks my boat. No, I think it's I think it's fascinating, and I think it's really interesting that Jonah Lehrer, the American journalist who got brought down because he, he what he did was he essentially manufactured a Dylan quote, and because people are such incredibly you know, tenacious fans of Bob Dylan, he got found out. Well, interesting mm. thing about that particular instance, which weirdly enough I, I wrote a blog about at the time, uh, was what Lara did was manufacture lines 
which are very, very close to, to real-life Bob quotes. Bob, Bob himself expressed everything Lehrer said he expressed, but in slightly different words. So I, I thought, you know, what happened to him as a journalist was a little bit unfair, really. Which is what Dylan has done with other songs. Other songs. His entire career, yes. which is take other songs and rework them, and which make, is how the folk make, tradition works. Yes. Yeah. And then he gets accused of plagiarism. But, so really, um, maybe we should think about Jane Lehrer as being in the folk tradition of journal- yeah, journalism. Yeah, journalism. <laughs> right, well, I'm not sure that's one that I think necessarily will fly in, the, in our editing process. But um, thank you very much to you and to Ian. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.